you're joining us if you're here for the first time on our Bible overview. And today we are in, uh, it's kind of like number, it's number, it's number three, but it's number four because we took two weeks looking at number two, which was um, the fall. But today we're going to be looking at the flood. I'm kind of covering Genesis 5 through to Genesis chapter 7, kind of roughly. And, and as, as I mentioned, we've, we've covered creation. We took two chapters to do that. We've also covered the fall, which I just said we took two weeks to cover. And um, in the creation chapters 1 and 2, what was the, re- the, the reoccurring phrase, if you remember, with regards to how God felt about his work? That it was good, right? That it was good. And, and, and when he gets to man, it's like, this is very good. And, <clears throat> and, and we said that could be described as the pattern of the kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom. Let me just skip through redemption and recreation and come back to that in a moment. And so... It's all right, sis. You're forgiven. So, the pattern of the kingdom... We saw Adam and Eve in the garden, in God's place, um, living under God's word, in perfect relationship with one another. And then, if you like, this was the way that things were meant to be. And this is often what we pine for, but often it's not what we experience. Yet, there's hope, and we'll come to that. Um, <clears throat> so, this is the pattern of the kingdom, and I'm saying, and this was creation, Genesis 1 and 2, but... Then we came to Genesis chapter 3, and there was a problem, right? Because in Genesis 3, what we saw was, what was the beautiful pattern had now become, um, the beautiful pattern of the kingdom had now become the perished kingdom. No one was now in God's place. God's people had been banished, Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience rather than their obedience, and now they were experiencing the curse. And things have gone from... From, from, wonderfully, um, from wonderful elation and, 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 and joy and peace to destruction and devastation because of their disobedience and their experience in the curse. Um, but it's funny because as, as bad as things get so quickly, um, God intervenes and in the midst of what seems like a really terrible situation, Genesis 3 verse 15, literally right on the back of the fall, we hear that God makes a promise. He says, I'll put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, between your seed and her seed. He, that is her seed, will crush your head, although you will strike his heel. Now, speaking so powerfully about an individual who would come and ultimately defeat the serpent, the dragon, the devil, emphatically, yet would himself be injured, right? Trying to bring you up to speed. And where does it eventually happen? Where does this crushing of this individual who comes, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, although his heel is going to be bruised, where does it happen? It happens at the cross, doesn't it? So this is pretty much a picture of our overview in, in complete. You can't see it from where you're sitting probably, but there's hopefully one thing you can see on there. We're all the way at the beginning during the flood today, but you can see where we're going. But ultimately, we are going to eventually end up at that place, at, the, at the, the revelation of that promise, which is Jesus at the cross. But can you see how long 
um, the wait is going to be before that promise comes. You know what I'm saying? So the whole of the Old Testament, you can see the arrow at the bottom, is the promise. And then we will see the fulfillment of that promise initiated at the cross, at least in terms of how history experiences it. But yesterday, Pastor E reminded us that the work of the cross, fundamentally the work of the Lord Jesus, was a plan that God had put together before the ages began, before even creation. So... We can see that God is going to fulfill his plan through Christ Jesus. And pretty much our whole story is going to build up to that point. And <clears throat> so Jesus is going to, he's going to conquer the devil. But what else is he going to conquer? What else is he going to conquer? I'm, I'm back in Genesis at the minute thinking about him coming. But he's already come. What else did Jesus conquer apart from the devil? Thank you, Byron. Death, which is... Um, what we saw introduced last week as a result of the fall, right? And we're grateful because Jesus is, he's the, he's the, he's the, the, the Adam that Adam wasn't. Like I said, the Adam that never was. And 1 Corinthians 15, there are two Adams. The first Adam who failed and flopped, but then there's a last Adam, second man, who's the only other perfect man. 1 Corinthians 15 says, verse 21, For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. See why God had to become a man. For as in Adam, the first one, all die. Right? We all inherited the, 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 the sin, the illness. I keep forgetting the word. Not poison, but the virus, if you like. Um, that Adam obviously had, every single person was infected with that. And, and, and the result of that is death, which no one can deny. But the good news is that in Christ, all will be made alive. That is those who put their trust in him. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So this Adam, this last Adam would do what the first Adam couldn't do. And can you see how? What we're trying to say about Jesus is true in that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Can you see that? He's the central character of the ultimate big story. And from this point in Genesis 3, <clears throat> we'll see individu individuals anticipate. I tried to begin to help us to see that last week. You're going to see individuals try to anticipate the coming of this special offspring, the coming of this special seed, this special son who we're saying is eventually going to be Jesus. It's repetition for reinforcement, so forgive me. Matthew chapter 11, we see this because John the Baptist um, was in prison. It says, when John um, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, right? This is the person that we're saying they've been waiting for. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Can you see the anticipation? They've been waiting, and his question is, are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? Can you see that they were expecting someone? Okay, so that's Genesis 3. Well, 1, 2, and 3. Now, because creation and the fall were so important, we felt it was vital that we spend some time on that, right? Which we have done. Um, <clears throat> now we'll begin to make big steps through the text as we consider redemption. Because this is really the big part of your Bible. In summary of chapter 4 and 5, 
um, before we get to our text, we see nine successive generations, including Adam. Nine successive generations, actually ten, including Adam. And and what we're going to see is in chapter five, which this kind of illustrates in bullet fashion, what we're going to see is a pattern. You're going to see when X person had lived for X amount of years, they had X son and other sons and daughters, and all of his days were X, and then he what? Then he died. Now, I'm not sure if you're looking at your Bible at the moment. You can if you like. You don't have to, because if you look at uh, uh, Genesis 5, you will see this pattern, and it's the whole chapter, and it's very consistent, as if the writer is trying to make a point. Genesis 5 verse 3 says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. Don't miss this. In his own likeness after his image. Now remember how man was originally created? In God's image, after God's likeness. Now every single individual that comes after Adam is now in, to some degree, in his image and likeness. It's, it's like, rather than have the image of God um, reflected in man, what we now his, have is the image of God, but reflected in and through man, not in the way that it ought to have been because of Adam. And now we all carry the likeness of Adam and Eve. We're still created in the image of God, but if you like, we're created in the image of God, bullet point in the image after the image of Adam. In the likeness of Adam. You know what I'm saying? And again, because of his sinfulness, right? And we see the result right here in chapter 5. It says, Thus the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Same thing with Seth, verse 6 through to verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth Seth were 912. There will be a point where I'll say, let me just put my teeth in. It's not yet. 912 and he died. Same with Enosh, 905 years, verse 11, and he died. Kenan, verse 14, 910 years and he died. Can you see the repetition of a particular word? Death. See, what a Bible overview does to some degree is it helps us to see how we should read our Bibles. And you know, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. You're standing up in a forest and all you're looking at is trees. And you don't realize you're in a forest until you zoom right out. That you, you, they get a drone, right? You look, oh, it's a forest. And you, can, you get a different perspective on it. This is what the Bible overview does. And I'm saying we're not so much looking at all of the detail, but trying to take a step back to see how does this all work? Can you see how Genesis 5 helps us to get the big picture? And can you see how this part of Genesis, notice, although 1,000 years later than Genesis, we were in Genesis 3 a week ago, but really there's 1,000 years that have now passed. Can you see how how this ties in with a thousand years prior to that, the early part of Genesis, death, the introduction of death, and a thousand years later, death is just knocking people over like dominoes. Now, what do you recognize as you look at the age 
or the ages of these individuals. I kind of highlighted them. You probably see them now that I've mentioned it, or maybe you saw it before. Can you see the ages of the individuals? Um, maybe this one's a bit more helpful, a bit more clearer. You can see on the left-hand side, all of the names of all of the people that I showed you on the list, right down to Noah from Adam. And you can see the year that they had their first son, and then um, their age at death. Can you see everyone lived for centuries? And I'm saying nearly a, a millennia, some of them. And it's often assumed, um, this is from the ESV, that something changed in the cosmology of the earth or in the physiology of humans or in both after the flood resulting in a rapid decline in longevity, finally stabilizing a normal lifespan in the range of about 70 to 80 years. Can you see that? Maybe we'll talk a little bit about why when we get to the flood in a moment. So, um, a couple of individual um, interesting characters. You've got, you got Enoch, who was an unusual character. Um, why would we say that? Um, one who was described how and why. It says in Genesis 5, when Enoch had lived 65 years, this is back to that same chapter again, when he had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three, 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, can you hear an echo from an earlier story there? Can you? Uh, it's mentioned twice, verse 21. Um, sorry, verse 22 and verse 24. What, was, what, what, what described Enoch's relationship with God? He walked with God. Does that, can you hear an echo? Adam in the garden walked with God. See, this is, this is supposed to remind us of what relationship with God looks like. It's like walking, isn't it? You're on a journey in terms of your life. And sometimes... We walk with the Lord. Sometimes we walk behind the Lord. Sometimes we run ahead of the Lord. Sometimes we're hiding from the Lord like Adam. And I'm saying, it describes a relationship with God. Some, some people are not walking with the Lord. You know what I mean? In Ephesians it says, um, some people are in the world without God. Not everyone's walking with him. But Enoch did. He walked with God. And... <clears throat> This describes right relationship. What, what else about him was significant? Especially in contrast to all that we see in Genesis 5. God took him. He didn't die like the rest. And, 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 and the inference is walk with God and you won't die. Can you see that? Right there in Genesis 5. And what else... Um, or, or should I say, who else on that list is historically unusual? It's actually um, Enoch's, Enoch's son. His name is Methuselah. And what was significant about him? Longest man who ever lived, 969 years. And, 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 and that, the narrative, it moves really quickly um, over chapter 5, <clears throat> spanning approximately 1,600 years, which is... If you check it, it's nearly a third of human history because 
from Adam or the fall of Adam to Abraham is approximately 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years. And from Jesus to today is 2,017. <laughs> 2,017 years. So we've come about 6,000 years of history up until now. Here, just at the end of Genesis 5, we're already one-third of the way through human history. And the end of, of chapter 5 introduces us to our, our next main character, who's um, the, the son of Lamech. So Genesis 5, um, verse 28 through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, you know, this one shall bring us relief. Now, remember, this is nearly two millennia later, yet there's this reflection on Genesis 3.15. Could, could it be now that this son is going to be the, the, the serpent crusher, the dragon slayer? Do you, hear, do, you hear, do, you hear, do you hear what the text says? Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. They're still reflecting on the curse. You know what I'm saying? We're 6,000 years now. We're still reflecting on the curse. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm saying? If you're in a Christian environment, if you're exposed to the Bible. And could it be that this one shall bring us relief from the curse? Can you see that? from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Guess what Noah's name means? Noah's name means rest. Could it be this one who's going to bring us rest? How many of you are feeling tired and weary, physically, mentally, and spiritually? You know what I mean? Me and Pastor E, was it yesterday? Pastor, I can't ever remember. One day rolls into the next. I, turned, I must have turned to him. I said, Pastor, I was like, E, bro. Like, he must have hugged me and said, You're right. I'm like, Bro, I'm feeling mush up, you know, bro. And I'm, I'm, I think I rubbed his shoulders. You know how I do, right? Rubbed his shoulders. I'll be like, I'll be like Bro, you, you must be mush up. He's like, Bro, it's all right, man. You know, I can sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? Now, in jest, it's, you know, it's funny, but you know what? I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you know what it feels like when you have a good night's sleep? You know, like one of them ones when you wake up and not, the alarm, not, not because of the alarm waking you up, but you wake up naturally. Oh, like nicely. You know what I mean? Just psychologically, you feel good, Carl. You feel like, hmm, that's just what I needed. And um, I think there's, there's something in that. You know, every seven days we're supposed to Sabbath. Every seven days, we're supposed to take a step back and rest. And it's supposed to be a reminder. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and you know what? Every day, we have a Sabbath. When we go to bed, well, like if you go to bed, like, when, like you're supposed to go to bed, right? And, and it's a picture of that eternal rest, that eternal state. I can, I can, I can feel it right now. You know what I mean? That, that, that euphoria that you experience. It's a reminder. And <clears throat> Lamech, son of Lamech, Noah, is this the one who could bring us rest? Could this be the one who will eventually have his heel bruised yet crush the head of the serpent 
Could this be the one who was promised? Did you know that the Jews are still waiting in anticipation? They rejected Jesus. And so they're still waiting for their Messiah. You may have heard that somewhere, somehow. That makes sense of what we're talking about. The Jews are still waiting for their Messiah. You see, but the thing is, they're obviously not not, not clear. and, and, And most people are not aware of the promised Messiah and who he is. It's unknown or it's unclear. I used to work, some of you who know me um, for a minute, I used to work in the post office. For 17 years, I was a postman. <laughs> Remember them days, Pastor E? And when I was in the post office, obviously just got saved, what, got saved in 1990, so for at the time I was there, I got saved in the post office through, funnily enough, a London City missionary who shared the gospel with Helen and then she shared the gospel with me. That's how we, you know, we both ended up getting saved. And I remember, oh boy, man was on fire in the post office. And there was a revival. People were getting saved left, right, and center. And um, I'm just looking around the room. I know that like, even a couple of people in our church, like Brian Labode, um, Karen's husband, Ian Dunstan, like bare people was getting like, saved. It was a real move of God at that time. And I remember some guys tried to hate on Christ. And they wanted, to, they wanted to take us on, in it, like theologically. And this particular guy, he was, <clears throat> um, you, you guys ever heard of Holy Tabernacle Ministries? Ain't really nothing holy about it. Holy Tabernacle Ministries. They're right, they're, they're a part of the Nuwabians, like the kind of loads of splinter groups. And they, they were headed up by a guy called Dr. Malachi Z. York. And them days, they were flying, like... The whole thing about Egypt and you know, African theology and all of that stuff was like, so they was coming at me hard. I mean, it's funny because now the head of the organization, Dr. Malachi Z. York, is actually in prison for 135 years because of child molestation. And, um, but my man draw for this on me, innit? One day, come, come at me with it. Like, Robert, have you heard of the epics of Gilgamesh? You know what I'm saying? And start chatting to me about the Enuma Relish. I ain't really got time to go into it, but it's not re- the epic of it's not really that epic, apart from, <laughs> apart from the fact that it refers to the flood story. You know what I mean? And it's like he was like, oh, he was trying to come like this was before the Bible, and you know what I'm saying like the Bible is trying to copy the epics of Gilgamesh. No, it's not really. That's not the case. What it is really is that it's it's a his, it's, it's a historical set of it's not even documents, but. It's information that's historical, but it's just a reflection on what actually took place. So in one sense, you know what I'm saying, it contains um, the flood story. and It's extra biblical, but <clears throat> it independently confirms what we already know. You know what I'm saying? But it's beautiful because it's, it's just an, it's an independent, you know what I'm saying? It, it authenticates, if you like, the scriptures. Not that it's not authentic without it, but it's just a history. So... Don't let anyone scare you with the epic of Gilgamesh, you know what I mean? Um, and it talks about the flood. And what I would like to do, I'd like for us to, to look at the flood under six headings. Don't be scared by that. Um, under six headings, we're going to look at the reason for the flood, the extent of it, the nature, the appropriateness, the purpose, and the picture painted um, by the flood. I didn't pray, did I, at the beginning? Let me just take a minute. Father, thank you for um, the privilege of meeting together like this. Um, and Father, thank you. Um, for the light that is shed on our lives through your word, the scriptures. 
it makes your your word lord makes sense of the madness that we experience lord on, on an international level on a national level on a local level lord on a personal level lord our lives may be in tatters right now or maybe not maybe we think that life is quite good but fundamentally lord your word helps us to make sense of this. Whether we are doing great or we're not doing so great, your word makes sense of this. And I do ask, Father, that you would, you would help us. Help us to see this big picture. Help us to see the big story. And recognize, Lord, there were just minnows swimming around, Lord, in a really big ocean. Not even a lake or a river. An ocean in terms of history. And I pray that that would humble us and that we would take note, Lord, of all that you have to say in light of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the flood and <clears throat> all that relates to it. So, so number one, the reason for the flood. The reason for the flood. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. Now, this, now this is, if you like, this is, this, is, this is what God had determined initially. Adam and Eve go forth and multiply, right? And we see that this is happening. And it says, hmm, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans, there's a distinction between these two categories. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. And they are, right? If you're a lady, yeah, you're beautiful. And they married and, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, you know what? Because it is, he says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. For they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now you see how man's age is reducing over time. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward. Very interesting um, parenthesis. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. i read that again. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. What kind of offspring are these? Well, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. Another translation says all the time. What a description. And not to get off on a tangent, but in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus makes reference to the last days. And he says the last days would be just like the days of, the days of Lot. The days of Lot were identified and hallmarked by what? Homosexuality. Pastor, the way you answered that question in the conference yesterday about homosexuality, oh my gosh. Boy, now I said that, everyone's like, how did he answer it? And I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what was the question, isn't it, I lie? Um, maybe we can, we got the recordings, I think we even filmed it as well, so maybe if you're interested, at some point you'll be able to hear or see that. And um, so the days of Lot were hallmarked by homosexuality. Would it be unfair to say that the days that we're living in, are, are, that's one of the big hallmarks of society, like kind of all of a sudden, overnight? And Jesus also said in Matthew 24, in the last days it would be just like what? 
the days of Noah. And you see what the days of Noah were hallmarked by? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I'd say that, 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 that that's a good synopsis of the time in which we're living in. Would that be unfair to say? So men and women are multiplying and filling the earth, fulfilling the original cre creation mandate. <clears throat> there's natural population growth, but there's a problem. Verse 2 and verse 4 seems to suggest that, that there's an unnatural population growth. Can you see that? The sons of God. Now, we've tried, we've, which are who? Okay. We're, I'm, I'm going I'm to suggest without trying to substantiate it, because I feel like we've done that over the past couple of weeks. I'm going to suggest that the sons of God are angels. And I think, oh, I said I'm not going to substantiate it, but I am actually, as, as I look back at my notes. Oh. <laughs> in Job chapter 1, do you remember, jumping in, chapter, in verse 6, it says, Now there was, um, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came, along, came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Right? So the sons of God, going to argue are angels, Satan being one of them. And there seems to be, notice, there seems to be this similar, let me just go back to Genesis 6. There seems to be this similar drawing near of demons to females. Where, that's another, can you hear the echo again? Where did we hear that? De de demons drawing near to women. In the, thank you, thank you, but in the garden, where, where the serpent, with Satan, drew near to Eve. Remember, like there's something about that. Possibly, possibly, in order to frustrate the promise of Genesis three to pollute the seed line. Right, okay, well, if God's going to bring a savior, he's going to bring a rescuer, he's going to bring a hero through the seed of man, the enemy's plan now possibly is, let's corrupt that seed line, innit? Maybe. Maybe that's, maybe that's one of the reasons why God had to bring the flood. And it's funny because the focus, if you, if you, if you, if you listen to the text... It kind of just, it says all of this deep stuff about angels having sex with women. It just kind of just keeps it moving. And the focus ain't even on the sons of God. The focus is more on the sons of man, humans. And could it be that what we see here is, again, man trying to be like God? Right? Again, like, like Eve. Remember, Eat the fruit, because if you eat it, you'll be like God. When she was already like God, but she forgot that, and we forget that, and we constantly want to be like God. Take the place of God, fundamentally. And, 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 and we're going to see it later happen again with the Tower of Babel. And could it be that the women are quite happy for, to have this unusual, unnatural copulation, because now they're getting to interact with these superhuman beings? I'm like, like this is, this is deep. And it, you might be like, Robert, man, this sounds a little bit far-fetched. I'm like, really? Has anyone seen a film called The Immortals? Like this, is, like, this is 
common, you know what I'm saying, in Greek theology. So you got this, you, you, you got this film, it's called The Immortals. And I think it's the second part to, what was the first one? Somebody help me. Oh, what was the first one? I think it's Prometheus. The, Prometheus might be the next one. But, but anyway, this, this, the immortals, right, um, is, is, is you have this guy in the film who he is, he's a son of, he's a son of the gods. But his mom's human. And, and you have these individuals who are called titans. And the titans, they're half men and half gods. And in the film, oh my gosh. You see these titans, they're locked away, and they're in this place, and they're all breathing, and you know what I'm saying, but they're locked, they can't get out. And have, has anyone ever read Second Peter, where it t- talks about demons who are being held in a particular place, and you know the name of that place? It's not in the, in the text. You have to look at the original Greek, but the, the word is hell, and the word for hell is not Sheol, and it's not Gehenna. And it's not Hades. It's a place called Tartarus. And it's the only place in the Bible that you find that word. And guess what Greek mythology calls this place where the Titans are held. Watch the film. It's called Tartarus. And then they get let out of there and it's all hell breaks, literally. All hell breaks loose. (laughs) So I'm saying what I just said about um, Genesis Six isn't unusual, you know what I'm saying, at least with regards to those who have been thinking about what this means theologically, but then also from a historical point of view, you know what I'm saying, this is believed by those who, who don't even read the Bible. And we shouldn't be surprised at stuff that's supernatural anyway, right? So, amen, my brother. So, angels and the Nephilim, verse 1 and verse 4, fallen ones... Um, <clears throat> giants, if you like. And it's funny because where do we see possibly these fallen ones, these giants, turn up a bit later on in Scripture? Remember, 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 do you remember when God's, his peop- thank you, when God's people came out of Egypt, walked through the wilderness, and eventually they had to go into Canaan? It wasn't easy, was it? They had to go in there and fight. Who was in the land? Thank you. Giants. Like, not metaphorically. Literally. Like, sometimes we read it. Why didn't they just go in and conquer? God gave them the land. Why didn't they just go and deal with it? (laughs) How quick would you be willing to run, you know what I'm saying, into the fray when you've got, like, nine-foot giants? It's like, sometimes we read the stories and we're like, we minimize the meaning. You know what I mean? But it's... Numbers 33 says, and, and there we saw the Nephilim, right? That's the same word that we just read earlier. The Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. And you have, you have one, of the, one of the well-known giants that came from, and I'm saying this group, sons of Anak, what was his name? Goliath. And he came from a place called Gath, right next to Ekron. Right? And, and that's, right, that's on the West Bank. 
And I'm saying Gaza Strip area. Philistia, that's where the Philistines were from. And I'm saying these real people, and that's why I love the Bible, real people in a, in a real place. And I'm saying at a real time in history. Um, how about this, this whole thing about this 125 years of mortality, verse 3. We saw that from our chart, the average age of, at death drops dramatically over the seven, eight generations. See, whereas initially everything was good, very good, now can you see that things are bad, like very bad? And verse 5, going back to Genesis 6. Verse 5, it says, <clears throat> Three things the Lord saw, verse 5, in God's sight, verse 11, God saw, verse 12. Oh, there we go. All right. No, I haven't got verse 11 and 12 up there. 4,000 years later, like I said earlier, in our time, has anything changed? You see? Things were bad, and God saw that it was bad. It was bad in God's sight. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. But we're all very bad, aren't we? We can't look back at them and say... And the thing is, we're not... Most people think that we're good. Um, sorry, that we're, we're good with bits of bad. No, we're bad with little tiny bits of good. That's the right way around. We're bad all the way through with bits of good. We are... And, and the thing is, we are so bad, we can't make ourselves better. That's how bad we are. You know, and that's, and, and, and that's what theologians call total depravity. And, and the thing is, that the, the, the beautiful thing about God's grace is that we're not as bad as we could be. You know what I mean? Um, but we must recognize that we could be very bad. And if you've lived, you know what I'm saying, I mean, all you've got to be is 21, not even that. And no, you know what, there's bad in me. Sometimes it feels uncontrollable, the bad that's in me. Um, and as you get older and older, that becomes more of a reality, at least the awareness of it, you know what I mean, if not the practice of it. God help us. Um, and where it... Where, and the thing is, you see, verse, verse 5 and 11 are just a fair summary of the human fallen state, which is something that God will substantially respond to. And I mean, it's like, this is a part of the reason we're here. It's a part of the reason, you know what I'm saying, many of us responded to the gospel. Because we took this very seriously. You know what I'm saying? See, God is going to respond to evil, our personal evil. And this is what the flood is a picture of. This is the, the, the flood is a sign of the fact that God is going to deal with this evil. And, I mean, and this should scare us, this should terrify us. And where in the New Testament do we see this similar synopsis? In, in Romans 3, what shall we conclude then, verse 9? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. <laughs> in Romans 1 and 2, Paul just, I mean, in Romans 1, you've got one of the longest lists that describes the fallenness of humanity. You can read that. Um, and in, number, in, in, and in, in Romans 2, you, you've got this group who look, this religious group, and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, judge them because they're really off key. And Paul turns around and says, wait a minute. So 
So you think you're any different because you're religious? And then he begins to point that out. And then you get, by the time you get to Romans 3, his conclusion is, you know what I'm saying? He says, look, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? That is, even if you're religious, not at all. For we have all already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, you know, if, in the context, those who are quote-unquote spiritual and the non-spiritual, alike are all under the power of sin. You know what I mean? Like when you become a Christian, most non-Christians think that when you become a Christian, you, you're, you're perfect. That's why they're waiting for you to slip. And then when you say, oh, I thought you said you was a Christian. Because their expectation is that you're perfect. But we know, you know what I'm saying, that we are being perfected, but we're not perfect. How many can, without putting your hand up, can admit, I dropped the ball? And you're a believer, right? That's what I'm telling you. Like, like I pick up the Bible and it burns my hands. Yeah, I can't let it go. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's so true it hurts, but I can't let it go because it's my only hope. And it's the only thing that really properly reflects as I look at it like a mirror, my true state. And the beautiful thing is it does show me the evil in me, but at the same time, I look at it, you look at it, you see the reflection of God. It's mad, right? That you still see the image of God. Verse 10, as it is written, listen, there's no one righteous. <laughs> No, not, if you didn't get the first time, right? No, not one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All, I think, I see Pastor E put this up the other day, and he highlighted the alls and the no ones, and there's so many of them. You know what I'm saying? No, there is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I think there are triple, not even double negatives. There are triple negatives in there. It's categoric, you know what I'm saying? That is the state. And so, so we talked about what God saw. This is what God saw, but God still sees this, right? How does God feel about this? How does God feel? Well, Genesis 6, picking back up in Genesis, right, moving through it. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That's the way he felt then. Has, have things changed in the world? His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. This is a sad moment. Very sad moment. But look at the glimmer of hope in verse 8. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And if you know anything about your Bible, it's not because Noah was special. He went better than nobody else, you know. But we ain't got time to go there, right? We're talking about how God feels. He's grieved. He's hurt. He's, he's also enraged and he's angry. Another translation says God is vexed. <laughs> and God changed his attitude... It's like, how can he be angry if he's a God of love, some would ask. Well, it's really not that hard. It's not that com it's really not a, it's not a fair question. Because we who are made in the image of God, right, do exactly that. 
Sometimes we can be really, really happy and really, you know, encouraged by something. And in a moment, yo, you know what I'm saying? In the blink of an eye, like, we can switch. And, and, it, and that not in an evil sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, God's anger does not contradict his love. You know when you love somebody, and let's say somebody tries to harm that person. How would you respond? You know what I mean? See, anger doesn't contradict God's love. It's actually an expression. If you really passionately love someone or something, an angry response isn't necessary. And it's not unusual. Like, why are you asking me that question? You don't ask me a stupid question like that. How can God be angry if he's a God of love? If God wasn't angry, then he ain't a God of love. Anger is an expression of God's love. It's akin to passion. Real passion, you know what I'm saying, often it leads to action, right? It's because God is, 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 is loving, but God is also holy. And God ain't going to, he's not going to um, neglect his attributes. <laughs> it's who he is. You know what I mean? And that's, what, and, uh, that's why the cross makes so much, much, much sense. Because God is angry at sin and he deals with it, doesn't he? He deals with it at the cross and his son feels the full brunt. His son feels the full wrath of his anger towards sin. That's what you see when you look at the cross and you can't look, you wince because you can't bear to look at what takes place at the cross if you've ever taken a moment to, to consider that. You see, judgment and mercy meet, the psalm says, at the cross. God regrets, he's deeply troubled. It's an illustration of someone who loves, but will show you their angry side. God, see, God loves his creation, you know. And he loves his relationship with man, and he loves, his, he loves the relationship that man has with man. And when that, get, when that gets affected... God gets, God gets angry when, 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 when an individual doesn't have that relationship that they ought to. When, when you are not relating to, you know what I'm saying, your neighbor. When you're not relating to um, your spouse. When you're not relating to, to your family members. Even when you're not relating to your enemy, it gets deep. God, God's not happy. God, and, and God must judge sin, but he, but he also has a plan to save. He must judge sin, verse 7, but verse 8, God's got a plan to save. That's, see, that's the bad news, but can you hear the good news? And that nicely leads to our next point. What does God do? <clears throat> what must God do at a certain point? In light of who he is. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. And God's actions in response to their sin. In light of his promise. See some of God's promises are nice. But some are not so nice. But there's still a promise nonetheless. Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Like knock yourself out. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it. You will surely die. That's, how many of you know that's a promise? It's not one of them promises we put up on the fridge. But that is a promise. 
and I'm saying, and God, and, 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 and the promise is death. And God doesn't give empty promises, good or bad. He's faithful to do what he says. But although we see the reality of the penalty of sin, which is death, we also see the grace of God in superabundance. Because God, he didn't have to rescue anybody, but he did. He saved Noah and his family and successive generations, sinners like you and sinners like me. Amen? So Genesis 6, talking about the flood. This is the account of Noah and his family. Now, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Now, careful, don't read that wrongly, as in, oh, see, no, that's, no wonder God saved Noah. Noah was perfect, blameless. <laughs> well, can you, see, can you see why it describes him as such with, by the next part of the verse? It says, he walked faithfully with God. And this is beautiful because this is encouraging to us as Christians because even though we fall short and we sin probably on a daily basis, because we're walking with God based on what the Lord Jesus did for us, then we are now in the same place as Noah. We're blameless. But he's only blameless because he's walking with God according to the... It's a bit like, a bit like, a bit like um, Abel. Do you know what I'm saying? A bit, like, a bit like Enoch, walking with God, although sinful. It says, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, as we saw earlier. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. And you see, the thing is, the only reason Noah knows this is because he's walking with God. We're going to see a similar thing with Abraham. So God said to Noah, you know what, Noah? I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it. Leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Verse 17. I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Verse 18, but, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And he goes on to describe then the animals coming into the ark. And it says, verse 22, that, God, that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Can you see Noah is responding to what God says? You know, that's what the Bible calls belief, faith, and that's how an individual is actually justified back then and, and, and the same thing today, listening to what God says and doing it, responding to what God says, and when we respond to God in that fashion, have you, heard about, have you ever heard the acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, I think it was Billy Graham, might have coined it. 
Jesus, this stands for God's, R for riches, A for at, C, Christ's, E, expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And, and, and this is what Noah experiences. In chapter 7, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so in that we've seen the reason for the flood, the condition of mankind. Okay, number two, the extent of the flood. It's universal. Why? Because the problem is universal. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left with those with him in the ark. The flood waters, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Okay, that's the extent of the flood. Number three, the nature of the flood. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Notice, water, not just from above, you know, but water from below. And some have described this as de-creation. They'd be like, de-creation? It's like the opposite of creation, because when God... In Genesis 1, God separated the waters, remember, from the waters by introducing dry land. Now the waters are being brought together again, not separated. And the picture is God is starting again. It's, re, it's, like, a, it's like a recreation. This is a small story within the big story of the big story. God is starting again, and he's, gonna, and he, and he's actually going to do this Again. Okay, so that's the nature of the flood. How about the appropriateness of the flood? The appropriateness of the flood. Well, it's because of corruption. What do you do when something's corrupt? God, and, and because of this corruption, God is going to bring destruction. And it's fitting because man has ruined the earth. So God is going to ruin man. It's, it's right and it's, and it's just. Genesis 6. Verse 12 says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God brings destruction. It's fitting. And again, do you know, in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe it is, it says, all these things were written for our learning and for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth have come. God is, this is a picture, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is a taster. See, the flood is not to solve the problem because how many of you know the problem don't go away after the flood? The problem's sitting on the ark, like all seven of them or nine of them. You know what I'm saying? The, the, it doesn't do away with a problem because you might be saying, well, so why bring the flood then? Well, part of the reason he brought the flood was to bring judgment 
but essentially it's a picture, it's a taster of something greater that is going to come. Second Peter chapter 3 gives us the purpose of the flood. The purpose of the flood. <clears throat> Above all, you must understand, says Peter in chapter 3 verse 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, huh, where's this promise? Where's, where's this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And what's crazy is this person, they understand, they got a, they got a biblical framework. You know what I'm saying? But they're still not believing, they're still not trusting. Verse 5 says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved, not for water this time, but for fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See, that's the purpose of the flood. And number six. The picture painted by the flood. God graciously provided, didn't he, a vehicle of rescue for Noah and his family. God graciously, how I many of you know, provides a vehicle of rescue today. I mentioned it last week. This is a picture that points to Jesus. And if individuals reject Noah, you know, and his message, see what happened to them. And what happens when people reject Jesus, who is God's new ark of safety? See, God still sees, God still hears, and God still feels. I mean, you know, God is still going to respond, and he will judge. That's what this very graphic story typifies. But he's not going to judge by water this time. It's going to be by fire. Bertram said it this morning. A rejection of God is tantamount to death and destruction. That is the reality. Therefore, why not take God's gracious provision of rescue, which is the Lord Jesus? Amen. Invite those guys to come up while I pray. Father, it says, I think it says, it says in Hebrews, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Father, you could easily have just done away with the world back then. But you didn't. And although we did see you do away with the world back then in judgment at the same time we saw your grace and your mercy and it's because you determined that you want a people called by your name saved by your grace 
sinful, yet to be called saints. Wretched, as we mentioned earlier, Lord, just totally depraved. And Lord, we're grateful because on one hand, Lord, I don't want to see my sinfulness. It's embarrassing, not just to me, but to others that see it. And Lord, my sin is devastating. It just had, it has implications, Lord, that are just so far reaching. And I'm so selfish, Lord, when I sin, because I'm not thinking about those who are going to be affected by it. Not least of all myself, and most importantly, not you. You're the real victim. You're the one who's being offended. Lord, when we sin. And yet, you still show mercy. It's unbelievable. Look at the mercy, the grace you showed Adam and Eve in the garden when they blatantly, bare face. It's like, what, what did they think? Did they think that you were never going to come back into the garden? And, when, and, and we're just like that. We do the same thing. It's like we act like you ain't never ever going to call us to account. But isn't it amazing that when you that when you do and, and you will do, you call us to account, Lord, you show us grace. My Father, uh, I just pray, Lord. I, I remember in nineteen in nineteen eighty nine when I got saved in St. Mark's Church in Kennethan. I remember I heard this message. I didn't real I didn't realize the implications of my sin at that time. I knew that I was a sinner, but I had no idea of the gravity of the implications of my sin. And you graciously opened my eyes to that. And I realized what I deserved because of my sin. And that overwhelmed me, Lord, in that moment when you opened my eyes. But what was more overwhelming is when I realized that you that you sent Jesus to take my punishment that was such good news Lord when I understood the bad news and Lord if there's someone here today Lord who who doesn't know the story and may today have just had a glimpse through this small story of the big story Lord help them to see that this is not just a film they're not just at the cinema and the lights are going to come on screen's going to go dim and you will walk out and go back to this is not this is not that this is the film from which every other film even has even has the the and lord i pray that that they like me like many who are here this afternoon lord would make that decision not to reject what noah is saying it's going to rain. Don't laugh. 
Don't ignore this. The flood is coming. And Lord, that that individual in here today, Lord, would do what they didn't do in response to Noah's preaching. They they didn't respond, but Lord, I pray that someone would respond today. And that is not getting to the ark, but get into that place of safety, which is the Lord Jesus. He's the new ark. And in so doing, find rest for their souls. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, burdened fundamentally with your sin. And I will give you rest because I'm not angry I'm meek and I'm lowly of heart. Jesus could say that because he knew he was going to face God's anger for you, for me. Would you respond to him today? Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.